up and your lights up in late October and try to make it last a little bit longer. Long gone are, are the days that people decorate after Thanksgiving. It's like late October now. Those trees go up, the lights go up. And I think likely that's because you can. You've got artificial trees that can last longer. We've got larger houses than people have had in the past. We've got attics and you can store lots of decorations up. But largely the reason why so many do that is because the joy of the season is so encouraging, but at the same time, the holiday of Christmas, it's fleeting. It's here and it's gone, right? It's already upon us once again. And before we know it, all the hustle and bustle will come to a stop. Those presents will be opened. It'll be December 26. Your trash can will be full of wrapping paper and your recycling cans full of cardboard boxes trying to figure out what to do with them. Before you know it, it'll be back to school. It'll be back to work. It'll be back to the same old, same old. And you'll be thinking to yourself, how did that go by so fast? You see, God is gracious to give us moments of joy. Moments of joy are good things. Those, those moments that, that daily He brings blessings and gifts to us. But at the same time, the Bible speaks primarily about everlasting joy. Joy that we can know in a moment, joy that we can know in this life, but also joy that lasts all of this life and into the next life. Everlasting joy. And joy, Christian joy that is, is primarily found in clinging to God's promises. Joy is not found so much in a day as it is in a person, Jesus. This morning, we consider God's promises in Christ, and as we look to Luke chapter 1, the end of the chapter, we're going to consider everlasting joy. What is joy? How can you know this joy? And what is the hope of everlasting joy found in Jesus? Turn with me, if you haven't already done so, to Luke chapter 1. We're going to pick up where we left off last Sunday in verse 39, and we're going to make it to the end of the chapter, Lord willing by the end of this morning. If you want to use your pew Bible in front of you, open that up. The best way to stay engaged in the sermon this morning is to look at a copy of God's Word. If you need that pew Bible, take it and turn to page 856. Page 856, we're going to be in Luke 1, 39 through 80. And if you've come this morning and you don't own a Bible, please use that Bible this morning. And then as our gift to you, it's not just a special Christmas gift, but something we do every Sunday, we give those Bibles away. If you don't own a Bible, take it with you, read it this week. Go ahead and turn there to Luke chapter 1, verse 39 through 80. And we've already heard it read this morning, so I want to go ahead and give you the main idea. The main idea that I want us to see in this passage is this. The gospel magnifies the Lord and brings great joy to those who believe. The gospel magnifies the Lord and brings great joy to those who believe. Last week when we kicked off Luke's gospel, we considered that the gospel is a message that exalts God's power and His faithfulness In Christ. This is the gospel of Luke. It's the very genre of this book, the longest book in the New Testament. Gospel means good news. And so we find biographical content in here, but make no mistake, this isn't a mere biography of Jesus. This is good news. It's the good news of the birth of Jesus Christ. There is no birth ever that was like his, born of the Virgin Mary. 
The good news, the Gospel of Luke, makes his way very quickly from the birth of Jesus, showing us important details about his life, confirming that he indeed is the Son of God. Who else can speak to the wind and the waves and they obey him? Only creation, creation only obeys God. Who else can give the, the lame the ability to walk again, the blind the ability to see? Who can raise the dead back to life? Only God. This must be the Son of God. And then ultimately, through the cross and the empty tomb, demonstrating the authority of Jesus as the Son of God to lay his life down as a payment for sin by dying on the cross. And then God in his power, raising him from the dead three days later, showing this is the Son of God who has authority over sin, over Satan, and over death. And all of this, the purpose statement given at the very beginning is that you might have certainty, that you might be certain about Jesus, which means if you're here this morning as a Christian, that you'd be encouraged in your faith, that you'd grow in your certainty of God's promises and Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, that you would come to a conviction, not just a a familiarity with Christmas, but conviction, being gripped by the truth of Jesus Christ. The gospel certainly exalts God and brings Him glory, exalts His power and His faithfulness, but the gospel also does something in you if indeed you've put your faith in Jesus. The gospel produces joy in you, brings great joy to those who believe. This passage is a happy passage. It's full of rejoicing from start to finish. And it's all rooted in God's promises in Jesus. As we make our way through these verses this morning, I want us to consider three ways the gospel works. Three ways the gospel works. The first way is in verses 39 through 45. And we're just going to break down this main idea. The gospel brings great joy to those who believe. It's the first way the gospel works. It works in us. The gospel brings great joy to those who believe. Now, the good news began in Luke with the angel Gabriel delivering a message from God, declaring that a barren older woman and a younger unmarried virgin would both conceive children, which again doesn't happen. Old barren women don't get pregnant. It's only by the power of God. Virgins don't get pregnant. It's only happened once. It'll never happen again. It happened with Mary. Both of these events showing the power of God that something otherworldly, something heavenly was breaking into creation, that God indeed was at work. Both of these children given to unfold God's long-promised plan for salvation. Now, the narrative continues here in verse 39 that Mary, upon hearing this news from the angel Gabriel that her relative Elizabeth was six months pregnant, again, a, a relative who was old, without children, barren, the angel says she's six months pregnant, and that causes Mary to take off in a hurry. She takes off in a hurry to visit her relative Elizabeth. And from what I read this week, this was a journey of almost 100 miles. Again, it's, it's believed that Mary was somewhere between the age of 13 and 16. She was betrothed to Joseph, so she was not yet married to him fully in terms of united fully to him and living with him. So she goes to spend three months with a relative, Elizabeth. 
And this is more than just some girl time. It's more than just having a baby shower, a long-awaited baby shower. There's something important that's going on here, some, some theological significance of what is taking place here. First off, we see that Mary believed the good news. She believed the message God delivered to her from the angel Gabriel, and that faith led her to action. It led her to take off on this journey of about a hundred miles to see what it was that God was doing with her relative Elizabeth. And look at what happens when Mary enters the house to greet Elizabeth. This is how we know this wasn't just like two relatives reuniting, spending some quality time together. Verse 41, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. Now, there's a lot of rejoicing in this passage. When you heard Callie read through this passage, you probably recognize, well, we've got, you know, Elizabeth is rejoicing, Mary is rejoicing, uh, the, the neighbors of John the Baptist, excuse, neighbors of uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they're all rejoicing, and then Zechariah gets a speech back, he starts rejoicing in the end, but don't skip over the very first person to rejoice in this passage, baby John. He's the first one to rejoice, and he's inside the womb. And he rejoices by leaping. Now, now, babies regularly move in the womb. Mothers know this. They, they kick. They move about. She was six months pregnant. She was familiar with that feeling. But something different happened there. This wasn't just like a foot poking out. He, he leapt. This word, it, it literally translates what we say in English, leap. It's like leaping for joy. Have you ever had a moment where you received good news and you, you jumped up? With joy. Maybe it was a relative you hadn't seen in a long time who surprised you, or you, you bump into a long lost friend across town and you jump up and you give them a hug. It's leaping for joy. That same word, leaping for joy, is what we see happening here in the womb of Elizabeth with John the Baptist. When Jesus, the unborn baby Jesus in Mary's womb, came into close proximity to John in his mother's womb, unborn baby John leaps for joy. Again, this was John the Baptist, the theological significance. John the Baptist and Jesus crossing paths for the first time. This is the intersection of the Old Testament and the New Testament. This moment with two expecting mothers, this is all that the Old Testament looked forward to and the New Testament, God's promises made in the Old Testament, God's promises kept in Jesus Christ in the New Testament. This is the intersection of that moment. We call that the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And I know John the Baptist shows up in the New Testament, but he's actually a prophet of the Old Covenant. He's a prophet, the last prophet who's coming in, and his job is to point to the New Covenant found in Jesus Christ. This is the intersection of these two covenants. And we see her even before Elizabeth can profess her faith in Jesus, even before Mary, in the womb, we see baby John doing this. In the womb, he's already busy about his work, fulfilling his role to point to Jesus the best way he could as a little baby in the womb, leaping for joy. Now, you've heard this, and I want to be clear, I don't want to skip over the details we see here that are really important in chapter 1. It's important for us to understand because our society, even though science and technology are very clear about what's in the womb, our society tries to be unclear about what is in the womb, acting as if what's there is not life. Science and technology are clear enough, but science and technology just affirm biblical truth. 
The Bible is so clear about what's in the womb. What does Luke call what's in the womb of Elizabeth? A baby. It's a noun there. A baby is in the womb of Elizabeth. And the teaching here in the New Testament is consistent with what we see in the Old Testament in teaching that the unborn are people. As we read about John the Baptist last week, we considered that he was filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb. The Holy Spirit does not fill clumps of tissue. The Holy Spirit, he fills people, persons. That's what John was in the womb. The Holy Spirit dwelled in him. And here in Luke 1, Luke twice describes, both in verse 41 and in verse 44, that's what, what is in the womb is a baby. Now, remember that Luke's profession? We talked about last week, a physician. Colossians chapter 4, Luke, the beloved physician. And Dr. Luke refers to what is in the womb as a baby. This Greek word for baby that Luke used, it's used throughout the New Testament for an infant. So in other words, the, the same word baby, if you look in Luke chapter 2, is used for baby Jesus in the manger. So the baby outside of the womb, laying in the manger, is referred to as the same type of being, a baby in the mother's womb. The baby in the womb is no less of a baby than the baby in a manger. God's Word is just so clear. And for Christians, we must work and we must pray, especially in this state, for the full protection of unborn people in the womb. It's important for us to see this in God's Word. Now, this visitation, it wasn't merely just Mary and Elizabeth, again, getting some time together as long-lost relatives. It was the intersection of the Old and New Testament. It's where Old and New Covenant first intersect, and it's John's first announcement the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah, he's here, and he does that through a leap in his mother's womb. Now, interestingly enough, the attention here is not on Elizabeth. I mean, after all, this is amazing. Six months pregnant. Only God could do that with a barren older woman who was humanly incapable of getting pregnant. Yet the attention here doesn't turn to her, and even who's inside of her, the attention here turns to Jesus. We see at the end of verse 41 that Elizabeth is now filled with the Holy Spirit. She recognizes once she's filled with the Holy Spirit, the Messiah is here, and she's filled with great joy. Now, in the New Covenant, the way it is today, all of God's people are filled with all of God's Spirit from the moment of conversion that we first believe. It wasn't that way in the Old Covenant. The Holy Spirit would come upon certain individuals to fill them to perform certain tasks for certain seasons. Now, one of those tasks that the Holy Spirit would come upon individuals for is to prophesy, to bring a word from the Lord, to speak truth from God about God. And that's what Elizabeth is doing here. The Holy Spirit fills her and she rejoices and she exclaims with a loud cry. And twice in verses 42 through 45, she declares, Mary is blessed. But again, the attention goes beyond Mary here. It's not so much on her. She certainly received a great blessing from the Lord. She is blessed among women, being chosen by God's grace to be the one who gave birth to Christ. Tremendous blessing, tremendous honor. She's a recipient of God's grace. But Elizabeth is rejoicing in God's gracious gift. 
She's rejoicing that Christ, the Messiah, has come. In verse 43, we read that Elizabeth was overwhelmed by the blessing of Christ's coming. And she asks in amazement, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Baby John, he was the first to recognize the presence of Jesus, but he was in the womb. He couldn't yet speak. Who's the first to proclaim Jesus as Lord? Elizabeth. This unborn child in Mary's womb, she says, he is my Lord. Mary is not the one being praised here. Jesus is. That title, the Lord, it's a divine title, speaking of of God. And back in Psalm 110, King David referred to the Messiah using the title Lord. We see a continuity here as Elizabeth is speaking by the power of the Holy Spirit. She proclaims Christ the Lord is here. The Lord God of Israel delivered God's people in the Old Testament from Egypt. The Lord Jesus will deliver them from their sins. Now, Jesus didn't become the Lord. Rather, in Jesus, the Lord became man. The eternal Son of God came down to earth as a tiny little baby. And from the moment of conception, we see here the Lord, the eternal Son of God, arrived here on earth in the form of a little human being. Now, this section is full of joy because this section is full of faith, faith in God's promises. You see, this joy is for those who believe. In verse 45, the last thing we read here is, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Blessed is she who believed the word of God. God sent word through the angel Gabriel that she would conceive as a virgin, a really hard-to-believe thing. Greater than that, this child that she would bear as a virgin would be the Son of God, the Son of the Most High, and Mary believed God's word. She was blessed in believing. This visitation of Mary with Elizabeth, it highlights that the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is good news that brings great joy to those who believe. And the joy we see here was not a temporary mood. Far too often that's how we think about joy. It's like a temporary mood. Like, I just had like a really great Saturday. It was awesome. I'm I'm feeling great. And then I wake up and it's gloomy outside and it's rainy and I'm wondering what I should do today. Thank you. You made the right choice. You came to church. You feel down a little bit. I feel down a little bit today. That's not describing true joy. It's not a temporary mood. Rather, joy is found in clinging to the promises of God. You see, the good news for that is that we can cling to the promises of of God when we're excited and when we're sad. When life is good, you you post those pictures online, you say, life is good. But it's not a real fair picture of life because life's also hard. There's trials There's difficulties. We go through suffering. We struggle with sin and temptation. But this joy that's found in Jesus Christ, we can know that joy in all of it because this joy is not found in a temporary mood. It's not found in your present circumstance. This joy is found in a person, in Jesus. This joy is found in clinging to God's promises. One person put it like this to define what joy is. He said, Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul. So it is a feeling. 
It's good to have good feelings. I want to have good feelings, but we need more than just a good feeling in the soul. Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit. So again, we saw in Galatians that joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's going to be found present in the life of Christians. That's good news. It's produced in us, not something we have to work for, but something God graciously produces by the power of His Holy Spirit in all who believe. Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as He causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the Word and in the world. Joy is found in a person. To believe in Jesus is to know everlasting joy. For those who've already put their faith in Jesus, this joy is already yours. It was given to you, deposited within you through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And Luke wrote this gospel so that Christians would increase in their joy. So that we'd be certain of the truth about Jesus, certain of the hope in Jesus. And as we consider the truth about Jesus and grow in our faith, that we would grow in joy in Jesus. And if you want to grow in joy as a Christian, you need to stop looking in the mirror and look to Jesus. Stop looking at yourself so much whether in pride or despair, and look to Jesus in awe of who He is and that God loves us in Christ. And if you want to have a blessed life, you must believe in Jesus. You need spiritual blessings of forgiveness of sins and holiness and righteousness that's only found in Him. The common blessings of this life will one day come to an end. If they haven't already, you and I need the blessing of salvation. It's being saved in this life and saved to have everlasting life with God forever in heaven. We need the blessing of knowing God. If you're here this morning, if you've not put your faith in Jesus Christ yet, the only way to truly be blessed is to know Jesus and put your faith in Him. If you haven't done that yet, I hope this Christmas season is one you can look back on and remember when God worked in your life and you put your faith in Jesus Christ. You became a Christian. And if you've come this morning and you don't know Jesus, talk with someone around you about what it would look like to put your faith in Jesus Christ today. What's keeping you from that? Talk about that with someone who brought you. That might be your parent who brought you. It might be your friend who brought you. Or come talk to our pastors. I'll be down here. We'll have pastors at the door afterwards. We'd love to talk to you about finding everlasting joy in Jesus today. We see a second way the gospel works in verses 46 through 56. The second way, the gospel magnifies God's might and mercy. The gospel magnifies God's might and mercy. What started as a visit between two relatives turns into a moment of rejoicing. Elizabeth rejoiced first, and now in verse 46, Mary rejoices. Well, why is she rejoicing? Well, think about it. She she had heard from the angel Gabriel she was going to conceive this child, and then Elizabeth just confirmed what Mary had heard through the angel Gabriel. Though a virgin, she's conceived a child, and one, one who Elizabeth called my Lord. And Mary, she responds with rejoicing and praise in verse 46. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. Now, what we see here in verses 46 through 55 is commonly referred to as a hymn or 
a psalm. That's why you see it kind of printed a little bit differently in your copy of the Bible. It's traditionally referred to as the Magnificat, which is a Latin word for magnifies. What we see there in verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord. Now, magnifies means to enlarge. That's what happens with a magnifying glass, right? Something that's difficult to see, the glass enlarges the object underneath the glass. It enlarges what it's focused on. Mary says, my soul, her inner person, magnifies the Lord. And magnifying the Lord leads to rejoicing in the Lord. Look at verse 47. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Again, joy is found in the Lord. Now, this good news that Christ has come, it it leads Mary to rejoice in who God is. And what follows here is an eruption of joyful praise to God. And as you read through Mary's song, you see that it's it's filled with themes of the gospel. But I want to highlight two main themes of the gospel we see here in her song. It was there in the, the heading. She praises God for His might and for His mercy. The gospel magnifies God's might. Look at verse 49. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. To say that God is mighty is to say that he is able. He's full of power. He's able. The mighty God, he brings forth a child and a barren woman. He brings forth the Messiah in the womb of a a virgin. He is able to do anything because he's full of might and power. And while God is full of power, full of all power, God is also merciful, meaning that he shows kindness and compassion to his people. The gospel magnifies God's mercy. That's what we see in verse 50. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. God deals mercifully with the humble, with those who fear Him, not meaning those who are afraid of Him, but rather those whose hearts are filled with a childlike awe toward God. Those who honor God are those who fear Him. Those who believe God are those who fear Him. Those who obey God and His Word are those who fear Him. Well, why is it so wonderful that God is both mighty and merciful? I mean, if he was just one and not the other, that wouldn't be good news to rejoice in. Think about it on a person's level. If a person's really strong and powerful, but they're not merciful, you're going to be scared of them. What might they do to you with that power? They're not kind or compassionate. If a person's merciful, well, they're kind and they're compassionate, but they don't really have the means to affect any change. Well, that's wonderful. They're a nice person, but what are they really going to be able to do with all of that? Put might and mercy together. God is full of power, He's full of might, and He's full of mercy. That's why we stand in awe of Him. He's a God who's high and lifted up, exalted. The one who who created things by the power of His Word. He said, let there be light, and there was light. He rules and reigns above all. He's majestic and high and lifted up. He's mighty, yet at the same time, He's merciful, meaning we can draw near to this God. He's transcendent, high, and lifted up. But he's also close, and his eminence is seen in Jesus. He's drawn near to us in Jesus. By the name of Jesus, we can draw near to him and have confidence and find comfort in who he is. In Christ, God has demonstrated his might and his mercy. And those who believe in Jesus 
stand in awe of who God is and what He's done. Notice there's a a perceived reality reversal here in Mary's speech. Everything gets switched on its head here, meaning the humble, those who are low, are exalted. And the proud, those who kind of have worldly means, are brought low. God in His mercy exalts the humble. I mean, Mary herself is a picture of that. A young, unmarried woman living in a small, obscure place like Nazareth in Israel, she's the one that God blessed and chose to bring about the Messiah. Verse 48, we see, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Because God alone is mighty, the proud will not dwell with him. Look at verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. While God in his mercy exalts the humble, God in his might crushes and takes down the proud, meaning those who refuse him, those who refuse to repent and believe, those who see no need for God in their lives, who trust in themselves and not in the Lord. That's the proud in Scripture. The gospel is received by humble hearts, but the proud don't believe God in His Word. They don't submit to God in faith. And in these final verses, Mary praises God for His justice for the proud and His mercy with the humble. Look at verse 52 through 54. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry, meaning the humble, with good things, and the rich describing the proud, he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Notice that God is the subject of every verb here in that hymn. It's what God is doing. He has brought down the mighty. He has filled the hungry. He has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel. It's magnifying his mercy and his might. All those who put their trust in Jesus, Jesus is magnified. The Lord is enlarged in our lives. I wonder here this morning, what's magnified in your life? As you came in this morning, what was weighing heavy on your mind? I hope your mind, hope my mind is in a different place than when we come in this morning. Hope this time of turning to God and what He's done in Jesus and singing songs and hearing His Word, that it transforms our mind. But, but what's magnified often in your life? What are you tempted, even leaving here this week, to have magnified in your life? Maybe your to-do list, your busy calendar. Maybe you wake up early in the morning. That's what pops on your mind first. Maybe shame over past sin. Maybe that's magnified in your mind and weighing you down, something you've already repented of before the Lord. You know, consider how often our problems are rooted in magnifying ourselves, magnifying others, magnifying this present world, our job, our financial situation, our kids and their busy schedules too. You see, true rest is found in the Lord being magnified. And that's why we need to hear the gospel. The gospel magnifies God's might and His mercy. Notice that Mary's worship here, it's focused on 
praising God. That's what magnifying God is. I mentioned this morning, I drew a distinction of the different types of prayers we have. Daniel Cox led us in a prayer of praise. Later, we'll have a prayer of thanksgiving during the Lord's Supper. Praise and thanksgiving go together. They, they certainly overlap. Thanksgiving, we're thanking God for what He's done, most of all in Christ, but we're also thanking God like, God, God, thank you for my wife. Thank you for my kids. Uh, thank you so much for my physical health. Thank you for this, this church family that's encouraging me. You just go on and on and on thanking God for what He's done. It's a good exercise, and if we want to be thankful, we should practice giving thanks. But consider how praising God, let, let, let's distinguish that a little bit. Praising God is just exalting Him for who He is. It's praising Him for His character. We should thank God. But this week, maybe give some attention to just praying prayers of praise. You can start with what we see right here. God, we praise you for your might. There's no one like you. You own the cattle on a thousand hills. You're the one full of power who spoke creation into existence by the power of your word. There's no one like you. You're high and exalted. Lift it up. God, we praise you for your power. And God, we praise you for your mercy. There's no one like you, full of compassion and kindness, one who draws near in gentleness, showing sweet, tender mercy through your son Jesus to all of Lord, we praise you for your might and for your mercy. Try that this week and see how that impacts your soul. Focus your attention on praising God, on magnifying Him, that you might exult in God's mercy and His might. Finally, let's consider a third way the gospel works. In verses 57 through 80, the gospel exalts God and His salvation. The gospel exalts God and His salvation. The Lord makes promises, and He keeps them. He's able to bring forth life in a barren woman's womb, and therefore in verse 57 we see His promise is fulfilled. Elizabeth gave birth to a son. Now when her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they joined in the party rejoicing. Now in obedience to the Old Testament law, on the eighth day after John was born, he was circumcised, receiving the sign of God's covenant with Abraham, marking him off as belonging to the people of God, the nation of Israel. And after a baby was circumcised, he would receive his name. Now, the custom back then, especially your first child, your firstborn son, is to be named after his father. So everyone was expecting that this baby would be named Zechariah. But Zechariah did not get a junior, he got a John. We see here first Elizabeth, because she's the one who's able to speak. No, he shall be called John. Elizabeth, she, she's shown faith in God's Word throughout, and here she follows through with obedience to God, and she names the baby John, the name given by God. And the name John means, the Lord is gracious. Now, I remember that Elizabeth was speaking here because Zechariah could not. He was unable to speak mute, temporarily mute, as a judgment from God, for not believing God's word sent through Gabriel, that he would have a son. So in verse 62, they, they run and start signing to him. I'm not sure why they're signing to him. I presume he can hear, but they're just trying to communicate with him. They're wanting to know, are, like, are you okay with this? You're, this is supposed to be Junior. And Elizabeth is saying, like, this is going to be John. And so in verse 63, he, he took a tablet and wrote, no, no, his name is, is John. That was his moment of faith, submitting to God and to his plan. This wasn't just him agreeing with his wife. All right, she gets to name the boy. I'll agree with her. I really wanted him named Junior. We'll go with John. Let's, 
how some of us did it. That's not what he's doing here. He's agreeing with God. He's agreeing with God's word. Yes, this child is named John, given by God for God's plan and for his purposes. And in that moment of faith, Zechariah gets his speech back. Nine months of not speaking. Elizabeth was probably kind of like enjoying that. What's the first thing, though, he does after nine months of not speaking? He praises God. His first words, he praises God. Verse 64, and immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loose, and he spoke, blessing God. Blessing means praising God. His first words are to exalt God and his plan for salvation. And in verse 67, Zechariah now filled with the Holy Spirit, and the first thing he does is he blesses God. Now, the context for this blessing, remember, this is a a circumcision ceremony. Circumcised, given a name, and then a blessing. And John, as the firstborn son, had a right to his father's blessing. But the first thing Zechariah does is not bless John, to be sure he does that there at the end. The first thing he does is he blesses God for what he's done in Jesus. Look at verses 68 and 69. We see the main theme there of Zechariah's blessing is that the Lord has visited his people. Past tense visited because Jesus the Christ is already there in the womb. That that word visit, it means to, to come near. Now, God coming near in Scripture can be a terrible thing, meaning he's coming to judge you. He's coming to condemn the enemies, those who have not put their faith in God, not submitted to Him, it can be a terrible thing, but it can also be a beautiful thing. I mean, it can either be judgment or it can be salvation. God's visit here we see is for redemption, for salvation. God has come near to redeem or to purchase His people, to buy them back out of the slavery of sin. Zechariah is praising God for His mercy and bringing salvation to His covenant people. God's visitation, if you look at the themes of the gospel throughout this hymn from Zechariah, you see God's visitation brings salvation. His visitation brings mercy. His visitation brings deliverance. His visitation brings forgiveness of sins for all who put their faith in the Messiah. In verse 69, Jesus is the horn of salvation. That's what Zechariah is praising God for. The symbol here, it's of an animal's horn. Think about the, 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 the place, the position of power and strength in the horn of an animal. One of my most terrifying moments on earth was on a safari in South Africa, and we upset an elephant herd. We didn't do anything to upset them. We were just driving down the street, and they jumped out from the bush onto the street, but they had babies with them, so they were in a protective mode. And, and the guide told us when the elephant started flapping his ears and stomping his foot, this wasn't to greet us. He was preparing to come crush us, and you saw those tusks or those horns, and I could just picture those coming through our windshield as it stepped on our car. A horn is a position of strength and power. Jesus is the horn of God's salvation. He's the one in whom God has placed all of his power, his power to save, his power to redeem, his power to forgive your sins, his power to declare you righteous before a holy God. Zechariah is praising God that the horn of salvation has come, this promised king in the line of David. And here it is again as we see God's might demonstrated through this horn. Here's God's mercy right behind it. 
God's might, we see his mercy again at verse 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father, Abraham. God's mercy and his kindness in keeping his promises to Abraham. God's salvation would be more than just freedom from political enemies. Notice in verses 74 through 75, the deliverance brought by the Messiah, what it would bring, verse 74, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. He praises God's mercy to deliver his people to serve him. To serve God is to worship him, to exalt him, to praise him. You see, the joy of knowing Jesus is the joy of being set free from sin. But what is so great about forgiveness? What's so great about being set free from sin? It's that we get God. We're set free from sin and accepted by God, and we get a relationship with Him. It means we get to enjoy God. We get to worship Him. We get to exalt His holy name. We're filled with joy having our sins forgiven and being united to God by faith in Jesus Christ. You see, the greatness here is about magnifying God and who He is in Jesus. The last part, he says, oh yeah, here's what John's going to do. Here's the blessing that John's going to get. John's not the one who's great. His blessing in verses 76 through 79 is saying simply, he's going to prepare, prepare the way for the Lord Jesus. He will lead the people to repent of their sins and seek their forgiveness. His greatness, John's greatness, found in magnifying Jesus the same way that each of us will know true greatness. In other words, it's knowing God and enjoying him for all that he is for us in Jesus Christ. There is no greater joy than knowing Jesus because through Jesus our sins are forgiven and we get to know God. Brothers and sisters, consider if there was this much joy before Jesus was born, how much more can you and I have joy where we live in redemptive history? We live after the cross after the empty tomb, we get to look back on those moments. We do that this morning. This is a meal of remembrance, looking back on God's love for us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But we live after the cross and the empty tomb, after the first advent, and looking forward to the second advent or the second coming of Jesus. If there was that much joy in this scene before Jesus was even born, how much more joy is there available for you and I today? Christ has come. He's been revealed. The greatest work that needed to be done has already been finished and accomplished in Christ's death and resurrection. The joy that is sure to come has already been promised. And as sure as God sent Jesus the first time, he is sending him a second time back down to earth. We can look forward in hope and joy and peace. Don't let those words just be nice little words that show up on a Christmas card. Let those words characterize your mind and your heart, as we take time at Christmas to look back, may we look forward in joy and hope and peace. And as we reflect on who Jesus is and what he came to do, may we remember that Christmas is not merely about a day to celebrate, a day that will come and go so fast. It'll be a great day, Lord willing, but a day that will come and go so fast. But rather, Christmas is about a person who is to be praised. And if your faith 
is in Jesus. You can know this joy of Jesus in this life and in the next. True joy, everlasting joy is found in Him. Let's bow and pray. Father, we see in Your Word that You have created us to be a people of praise, and therefore You've created us to be a people of of joy, a people who rejoice in who You are and what You've done for us through Your Son, Jesus. And as we come now to this table, as we've just heard Your Word, we ask by the power of Your Holy Spirit that You would cause us to rejoice in who You are and what You've done for us in Christ. And Lord, we pray for any here that don't know You this morning, that You would turn their hearts to believe in Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen.